Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from our new location, the Clean Cuts Miles Davis studio at Broadcast House in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. Entrepreneurship is often a song sung as a duet. Richard Sears meets Alva Robeck in a train station, and together they decide to build a catalog business. Hewlett and Packard conspire in a garage in a part of Northern California that, partly because of what they created, soon becomes known as Silicon Valley. Jobs and Wozniak meet in high school and go on to put a dent in the universe. Bryn and Page Google their way into history a generation later. And to that list of dynamic duos, perhaps we should add Goldman and Nailbuff. That's Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff. Nearly two decades ago, one was a student and the other a professor, and together they hatched an idea for a different kind of beverage company, one that sold tea that tasted like tea rather than like tea-colored sugar water, and one that had a social mission, improving health, boosting sustainability at its core. Today, that company is Honest Tea, one of the great entrepreneurial success stories of our young century. What began as an idea in a classroom has today become a company whose products are in 100,000 supermarkets, restaurants, university dining halls, as well as in the Pink Family Refrigerator. And now they've told their story in a new book, Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. It's a great read, chock full of business lessons, as well as cameo appearances from Barack Obama, Oprah, and a severed piece of male anatomy. And just as Honest Tea is a different kind of company, Mission in a Bottle is a different kind of book. It's a graphic novel. Now the authors have dropped by office hours to talk about it. With us here in the studio is Seth Goldman. He's Honest Tea's TEO. And on the line from New Haven, Connecticut, is Barry Nailbuff, who teaches at the Yale School of Management. Seth and Barry, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, let me explain to you and to our audience how Office Hours works. On each program, we open things up so that listeners around the world can ask our guests questions they've submitted about work, business, life, careers, education, politics, and anything else. Uh, if you've got questions, we have answers, and when we don't, we make something up. Mm -hmm. As we like to say, this program is Car Talk for the Human Engine. But as always, I get to ask our guests the first set of questions, so let me begin with this. Seth, take us back in time to 1994, a classroom at the Yale School of Management. How did this idea, which has become so popular, so instantly recognizable to American consumers, emerge? Well, it was a case study Barry was teaching. Uh, it was called Coke versus Pepsi. So it was looking at the beverage industry, and Barry asked the very fair question, which is, when you walk down a, a soda, a, a, a beverage aisle, there are hundreds of options. They all um, have about the same calorie profile, um, but are there, was there anything missing? And so even though they all, you know, some of the ingredients are different or some of the packages are different, the, I really raised my hand because there's all the sweet drinks and there's all the watery drinks, but there wasn't anything with 20 calories per 8-ounce serving. And Barry agreed, and uh, we, so as a focus group of two, we said, well, if we think this, there's an opportunity here, this is worth looking into more. And that was the, the seed for the idea, and, and it uh, took a, a few years to germinate. Um, and, and Barry, you write later in the, in the book, and let's get to this right now, um, answer a question, a very intriguing question, is if, if you guys saw this right away, if you guys saw this gap in the market, why didn't the established players figure this out, that, that there was a market for 
less sweet, good-for-you uh, bottled tea beverages? That's always a question you have to ask as an entrepreneur because as smart as you might think you are, you're not the first person to have thought of the idea. And therefore, why? And since we're not the best positioned in the market to do it, we had no experience in the beverage world, uh, why should we be doing it? Uh, why is it that the Cokes and the Pepsis didn't do it? And I think there are several answers to that question. The first is the nature in which, and how they do market research. They tend to survey the customers who are in the market today. Hmm. And folks like Seth and myself, who didn't like what was being offered, weren't in the market and weren't being asked what it is that we wanted to drink. A second reason is that the beverage companies tend to go after people who are the teens, figuring if they get them when they're young, they'll have them for the rest of their life. And what happens is people's tastes change. They become older and more sophisticated. They don't have the same sweet tooth they may have had as a teenager. And so by focusing on the teen market, they tend to pick drinks that I think are way too sweet. A last reason I'll give you is that the way in which they do taste tests, uh, blind tastes, leads you to make drinks that are too sweet. First, you only give people a sip or two, and with just a small sip, the sweetest beverage often wins. We made people drink the whole bottle, which was sometimes a challenge when, mm-hmm. you, uh, when people had to pee a lot after their focus groups. Sure. And or they don't the, love Moroccan mint. Yes. And the second issue uh, that we felt is that uh, a blind taste test doesn't take into account the, uh, what the calorie count is. Hmm. And somebody may say, this thing isn't the number one choice, but it's pretty darn close and it only has half the calories. And so I'd prefer that. Interesting. So, so, um, so you see these, so it's not a good analysis. So you see this gap in the marketplace. You say, maybe there's a there there. Um, Seth, you don't go immediately to start this company. You actually take a real job um, straight out of business school. But eventually you launch this business out of your house. Let's go back in time just for one more moment here. When, you, when this was about to launch, uh, Seth, what were your goals? I mean, when you thought about it, like what were you trying to achieve? You know, they were audacious goals. They're goals that that I still have, which is to build a national brand that really stands for doing business differently, that helps change the American diet, that helps change the way we interact with agriculture, and Mm. and the way we even interact with consumers as a business. So those are goals we still aspire to, but um, we've made a little bit of progress in the 15 years we've been at it. Now, Barry, you had a different, you've had a different role in the in the company, less of the day-to-day role that, that, that Seth has had. What, you know, again, go back in time. You're in New Haven. It's the mm-hmm. mid-1990s, mid to late 1990s, and you have this crazy student with this cockamamie idea. What are you thinking at the time? So what do you want to accomplish? There's this old saw that those who can do and those who can't teach, I guess those who can't teach, teach teachers. And <laughs> those, it goes, would... those who can't teach, teach gym. And those who can't teach gym are administrators. But anyway. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So uh, I didn't believe that. Uh, I believe there's nothing so practical as a good theory. Mm. And I was tired of being a consultant and not having my ideas listened to. Interesting. Uh, so I thought that this really was a great idea and that I was willing to put my money where my mouth was. So this book, this book, Literally. Te- <laughs> this book tells the story of your partnership and the growth of of um, of the business. Um, but it is, in many ways, as I read it, a story of of partnership. And one of the things that comes out, and you mentioned it explicitly somewhere along the way, is that you guys have different personalities. You're not the same. You're not, you know, clones of each other. Tell me, tell us a little bit about that. That you're, how are your personalities different? 
and why did that make a good match? And then what are the lessons for the entrepreneurs in the audience who are thinking about partnering up with somebody? And I'll go first on that. So, you know, it was interesting when I talked to my Yale classmates about the fact that I was partnering with Barry, most of them just shook their head in disbelief because Barry at the time had a reputation as being a little bit of a, uh, you know, hard nosed, cold collar. And, and um, I think my personality is, is, you know, sort of very different than that. And so um, they were a little surprised that we would be think ourselves compatible, but it, it is continues to be a wonderful partnership. And as, as you know, the book is evidence, you know, Barry, I, I reached out to Barry to continue to collaborate once the company was, was sold because, um, we do see, we, I think we do see the world differently and, um, but a wonderful counterbalance to each other. So I think I am more of a, of a, of a people person and mm. a little more of a, um, getting things done. And, and Barry is, has a, is a wonderfully, um, creative thinker and, 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 uh, and and uh, can at the right times be a little tough on people when they mm-hmm. <laughs> probably better than me at that and and uh, I think at at the um, the core the key to to the to, uh, what I hope is ongoing success of our partnership is that there's a great deal of trust and so when it came time to to, to launch the company the weekend before I was going to give my resignation at my old job I traveled up to New Haven and I sat across Barry's kitchen table and. We really talked through almost life plans just to make sure mm. we were on the same page, and there mm-hmm. wasn't going to be a, a five-year surprise where uh, or anything like that. And Barry, what, from, from your perspective, again, you know, what? How, how did the personalities match up in a way that was effective? And again, you know, if you if you can extrapolate from sure. that, what you know, put yourself in the mind of of some you know one of your current students. Mm-hmm who wants to be an entrepreneur, who has an idea, what are the lessons there for the kind of partner that she should look for? Yeah. One of the challenges of leading a company is that it's, first, very lonely, so you can't always turn to other people for advice because they're reporting to you, and that creates conflicts. And so being there to be an objective advisor and supporter, my number one and only role was to help Seth be successful mm-hmm. because if he would succeed, I would succeed. The other challenge that I'd say as an entrepreneur is you have to get 10 out of 10 right. Mm. In a classroom, 9 out of 10 earns you an A. But <laughs> in an entrepreneurial situation, you can do nine things right and mess up the 10th, and everything will go down. And it's really hard for somebody starting out to be great in finance, accounting, strategy, operations, accounting, uh, selling, hiring, uh, raising money, uh, those, it's so many different skills. And so what was great is Seth could focus initially on the operations and I could focus on the fundraising and allow us each to do what we thought we did best. And so it's a lesson for, for other folks out there. So look for complementary skills. Don't look for a clone. Exactly. Figure out what are the things that you are weakest in mm. and find somebody who can help you fill in those gaps. Also realize that it is often very helpful to have two people on a team mm. because sometimes there really is a need for somebody to be tough. And uh, I could do that, and people could continue loving Seth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> he, he could put the blame on me, and uh-huh. that was okay. Uh-huh. It's like a detective show, you know, with the good cop and the bad okay. cop. Um, so uh, you're, listening, you're listening to Office Hours. Our guests today are the co-founders of Honest T in studio with us is Seth Goldman. On the line from New Haven is Yale professor Barry Nailbuff. And I should say, here in the studio, we have a, a container of uh, uh, Honest Tea Honey Green Tea, one of my family's favorites, half and half. And Seth, 
is drinking pomegranate blue. Um, so am I. Oh, there, <laughs> you're there, there you go. So your tastes maybe are not that that complimentary. All right. So let's again, let's go back in time. Let's, uh, Seth, you launched the business out of your house. How'd you get your first order? So I made a sales call on Whole Foods, the regional office, mm-hmm. and Barry had uh, prepared in my kitchen with me five thermoses of tea that we put in uh, some of these you know, hot pot thermoses and then an empty Snapple bottle where we pasted a label on it. Mm-hmm. We go into the buyer's office and explain why what we're offering is different. You know, it's, it's not sweet. It's not uh, watery. It's got this profile in to our great, uh, both delight and horror, the buyer said, great, I'll take 15,000 bottles. And there's this long pause mm-hmm. <laughs> because we never made it anywhere but the Now, kitchen. at this point, you had five thermoses. Exactly. Okay. Well, so. and, and, and to add insult yeah. to injury, he said, and, and I'd like to get those 15,000 bottles delivered for free. I want, you know, and then if, I, if yeah. they sell, I'll, I'll pay you on the next order. And um, so I said, thank you so much. I, I, this is very exciting. Um, but the whole company is me and these thermoses, and in fact, the thermoses are on loan from Barry, so it's really me and the, <laughs> and the Snapple bottle. So I can't give it to you for free. I'll have to, um, have, you'll have to pay for that. And then there was a long pause on his side, but you know, to their credit, they said, okay. There you go. And we were in business. And so, um, so from five thermoses to an order for 15000 um, One of the things, I, again, we're talking to uh, Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff. Their book is Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business differently and succeeding. It's a story of how they started Honesty. Again, chock full of all kinds of, 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 uh, of lessons. It's a really great read. We're going to talk about the format here in a moment. But I've had a 16-year-old daughter who read this book, and, and her reaction I thought was really interesting. Uh, she's probably, she has sort of an entrepreneurial spirit, and she's also a huge Honesty fan. And, um, and she said after she had read it, um, and believe me, she doesn't read many of the Office Hours books. Um, she says, you know, wow, I, I can't believe how many times these guys were so close to completely crashing and burning. There is a perils of Pauline quality yeah. to this story. It, it, Barry, is that true of all startups? Is that just the nature of the beast? Um, I think that uh, the, there is lots of good luck and bad luck that you have, and that you need to have the resources to survive the bad luck. And that's a challenge that many young entrepreneurs really can't overcome. Mm. And so uh, what goes wrong is not uh, predictable. We couldn't have figured out that the plant was going to have the wrong type of filler that mm. could lead to glass in the bottles. We could never have predicted there would be alcohol in our kombucha. Mm-hmm. Uh, kombucha is, a, is a kind of a drink that, that ended up you having to, having to pull because it had somehow fermented and had an alcohol content of right. whatever, 0.05%, <laughs> which is not good for kids. Uh, and so uh, you, you think you have it all figured out in your business plan, but then something goes wrong, and next thing you know, you need to raise money at just the wrong, at just the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that we were unlucky, but no more unlucky than anybody else uh, would, would, would be. And the, and the secret of overcoming that bad luck, you say, is is uh, is, is resources well, or resilience, adaptability. Two, two things. Yeah. One, Seth is the world's most wonderful optimist. Ah, uh huh. And he always believes that things will turn out for the best, and he has been right. Uh, and the second is that uh, we had reason for being passionate. That is. We really believed that with every bottle of tea that we sell, we are improving the American diet and helping people achieve what they want. Mm. And our customers were telling us that, and so we knew we had the big picture right. 
And so all we had to do was not mess up, and we would be fine. Okay, let's go. Let me let me add a, another point here, Barry. Uh, come back because uh, toward the end of the book, you you offer some 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 more explicit lessons. And one of the things you say really caught my eye. You say, entrepreneurs. I'm quoting you now. Entrepreneurs tend to be overconfident and unable to imagine all the things that can go wrong or appreciate all that have to go right. So what's what's the antidote? What's the, I mean, you say, is there an antidote to that? Is there an antidote to that ex- excessive confidence? Or is that excessive confidence part of the package and you have to deal with the downside of it? Uh, I also mentioned how uh, when I meet people who want to start a business, I try and talk them out of it. And if I can't, if I can talk somebody out of it, then they don't have the re- requisite amount of optimism. Interesting. Uh, so I think the, the one place where it got us off track was we were uh, offered the chance, uh, somewhat required, to guarantee our performance to an investor. Right. And our lawyer said to us, you know, I think you may be a little over-optimistic in this. Mm. And we didn't listen. And so uh, I'd say, yes, you should be over-optimistic, but you should recognize that you may be, in fact, mm-hmm. fooling yourself. Yeah. And when other people warn you about this, take heed. And, Seth? you know, certainly uh, when we look back on it, the, the, the year that we made the guarantee was 2001. Mm-hmm. You know, just put that... Unpack it a little bit. Explain, without going into the full details yeah. of the financing, the valuation, mm-hmm. t- tell us about, you know, what you... So we were looking to raise the company, raise money for the company at a certain valuation. And the investor said, boy, that valuation seems high. Mm-hmm. We say, well, if we hit these sales goals, then it's not high at all. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, if you, you know, then can you guarantee you're going to hit the sales goals? And as Barry said, you know, I'm... I, I was optimistic that we would hit the sales goals, and we, we didn't hit anything like that. Uh, and, and part of it is because it's very hard to project growth when you're so early. Like it's really a multiple of differences. And then stuff happens that no one can anticipate. And in this case, 9-11, you know, through mm-hmm. the whole econ- economy for a loop, not to mention the early stage beverage companies. And so that w- there's never a good time to make a guarantee. But if, there, if there's a bad year, that would have been a bad year to do it. Uh, so, so you, so you get your order for fifteen thousand. You start growing. You start making sales calls on a whole variety of other uh, buyers. Uh, you slowly grow. Um, but one of the things that, that struck me from the book, I had a different reading of it, sort of different big takeaway than my than my daughter did, was this. It's like when you think about honesty from a business perspective, what people think about, I think the most salient things are what a great brand. Okay, that's a mark. What a great marketing story! What a great brand! Uh, what a great example of marrying sustainability with you know a for-profit business. But as I read this and uh, this book, and the book is Mission in a Bottle, a great book about the story of honesty. Um, as a business lesson, I read this book and said, "Man, this is a book about distribution and operations." This is a book about you know the nitty gritty stuff of how do you get your product in the store, how do you get stuff in a bottle. Can you guys, either one of you, tell us a little bit about uh, how important distribution was and and how important um, actually figuring out a way to make stuff um, was a cause of many sleepless nights. Well, what's so ironic about um, that is we actually have our original business plan posted on Honesty's website, oh, Honesty dot com. And that business plan, when you read through it, says nothing about distribution uh-huh. and very, very little about production. So we were, you know, we we had the we had a lot of the pieces right around the brand vision. Yeah. But the tactical about how to do it were were was where we were under uh, qualified, and uh, in the end, really, were critical to the business because you can make a great product, but if you if you can't um, 
produce it well consistently and then get, not just sort of get it to a warehouse but get it to a beverage shelf then you haven't really completed uh, the the work. So for us, the distribution curve was extremely painful um, to, to, to figure out how to get the product to consumers. And we, we got cheated by distributors who didn't pay us or uh, bullied by distributors who, you know, made us sort of do silly things to, to be able to get to, to, to their market. But we... And you, fa- you also faced at the time what was a pretty significant player who in, in, the, in the market who actually did not want you to succeed. Right. Tell- Lot, yeah. I mean, certainly Snapple had uh, distributors locked up yeah. with, with, you know, uh, no compete uh, clauses. And those were a lot of the distributors who were especially good at getting to the independent stores and where we needed to, to build distribution. So, you know, ultimately, when we did decide to sell to Coca-Cola... Um, the, the most attractive aspect of, of the partnership with Coke was this distribution muscle that they have and, and to be able to get our product to um, all parts of the, of the country where, you know, that, that's just a, a dream come true. And, and we really learned the hard way how painful it is to build out a distribution network. Uh, and then, um, Barry, you also write about, I, I don't mean to focus you, Barry, on the mistakes aspect of this, but maybe it works for your personalities, uh, is um, you say, you write, uh, our, our biggest mistake wasn't predictions, production, or people. It was a strategic blunder. And you also write, and I love this line, the mistake that almost killed us was buying the bottling plant. Tell us about why you bought a bottling plant and, and why that ultimately proved not to be a great idea. The challenge we had is we were working with a plant up in Buffalo, and things were going okay. Uh, Buffalo's kind of far away, and it's hard to get to in the dead of winter. Mm-hmm. But as things were progressing, the plant manager told us, uh, sorry, guys, there's three months where you can't come here. We're entirely busy with apple cider season. Mm. And we said, well, wait a second. If we can't have production for three months and we get orders that we couldn't fill, that could put us out of business. So we really needed to have more control over our destiny. Moreover, they weren't really particularly friendly to us in terms of giving us an opportunity to experiment and figure out better ways to make the tea. And so by buying a plant, we knew that we'd have enough capacity, we'd have the ability to experiment, and uh, have our future assured. Uh, So those were all the good things, and sure enough, by owning the plant, in fact, we made better tea than we had ever made before. And they really did pay attention to us because they were us. We were them. The mistake, or what I would do differently now, is go back to the other plant and say, I know at our size now, we are just irrelevant to you. But here's 25000 Here's $50,000. Mm. Uh, is that enough profit to pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. And so become a much bigger customer in effect than you are so as to get the attention that you really need and require. And we lost a lot more than that by owning the, the other plant. So you know, yeah. that, 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 that would have been a very um, good investment to have made. Oh, right. I mean, the losses were what? On the Over order a million. Of a million dollars, yeah. <laughs> on. And, and the reason was that ultimately we didn't have enough capacity to fill up the plant. And so that required us to make products for other people, including sometimes our competitors, right. which was a disaster. And also, we're, uh, one of the things that entrepreneurs tend to be, at least Seth and myself, is folks who are interested in doing things new. Mm. And to run a plant is really about getting a perfect routine and mm-hmm. doing the same things again and again. And that's yet, yet a different type of personality and not something that was 
in either of our hearts. And the other drain of the plant was not just the financial, but just my, my focus and my energy. You know, instead of thinking about how I'm going to build Honest Tea's brand and, and new products and new customers, I'm thinking, how are we going to keep this plant afloat? Where are we going to find the money to stay open? How do we handle this, you know, uh, management problem at the plant? So that, those, all, none, of those, none of those concerns were building the brand. And in the end, when we sold the plant, we stayed there. And we continued to produce at the plant. It just wasn't our plant. Right. So you're so you're 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 dealing with these distribution issues, which is hugely important in a physical product that has to get into into stores. You're, you're you guys are actually um, uh, brewing your tea in a way that's different from what was in the industry standard for how to do that. So you have to be very meticulous about that. And it's difficult. It's it's troubling. Um, there's a, there are a lot of scenes in this book of Seth not sleeping um, and. You, you, you would go along, but, you know, you start growing. In 2001, you sell $3.2 million worth of, of, uh, of beverages. Next year, 4.6. Next year, 5.5. There's a slow, steady climb. Things are working. You're speaking to a market that's, that's apparently being unserved. Um, and yet, there's still some other challenges here. And one of the things that I think is interesting in this book for entrepreneurs is the lessons on raising capital, but also on the importance of cash. The importance of cash. Seth, tell us about how important cash was to you as you're making this very slow and steady but forward march to more, more and more sales. One of the ironic things that people don't realize is you can be growing very quickly. Uh, and when you, when you hear a company growing that quickly, you think, boy, that you know they must have a lot of money. But in fact, if you're building up your inventory and investing in your growth, you actually can run out of cash. And that's actually the downfall of a lot of beverage companies mm, that mm-hmm. we've seen. So um, for us, it was just critical. And, and, you know, the first strategy was, of course, not to spend much money. You know, how can we, you, you know, whether it means recycled desks or sharing hotel rooms mm-hmm, or anything mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that. And then uh, we would work with our suppliers. And I remember every January, I'd call my, our bottle supplier, who was our largest single, you know, uh, vendor, and I'd say, well, this is the call where I ask you for extended terms. And, you know, if, if, instead of paying him in 30 days, if I could pay him in 60 or 90 days, all of a sudden I basically, you know, was sort of doubling, you know, the amount of money we could have available. And then uh, finally it, we did have to raise money from investors. And our strategy was always to raise just enough money. Mm-hmm. And the idea there was that it kept us on a tight leash. It meant we would make we – we're still going to make mistakes, but they'd be less expensive mistakes. Um, and and then ultimately we could keep control of the company that if we raised a lot of money early, which is what a mistake I've seen a lot of companies do, um, then you give entrep- uh, investors, outside investors, more control right. in the future. And one of the reasons we made it, what I would say is across the finish line to a, a transaction that we wanted to have happen was mm-hmm. because we had the governing control of the company you know, through the first 10 years um, so that when we were sitting at the table with Coke, we controlled um, you know, the, way we, the, way, the outcome. You, in, in contrast to, say, having an investor who just wanted a big exit yeah. and wash his or her hands And I've it. seen yeah. so many ugly sure. endings to beverage companies where someone comes in and they've got a different time frame than the entrepreneurs mm-hmm. uh, for whatever. You know, maybe something else happens in another, another part of their portfolio and says, hey, we need to make this sale happen yeah. this year. And that just doesn't – that's not the right strategic move. Uh, you're listening to Office Hours. Our guests are Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff. They're the co-founders of Honesty and the authors of the great new book, Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. So as we take our way through this story, there is on, uh, toward the end of the book, a very lovely chart. I'm showing it to Seth right here of, of um, sales um, 
climbing and climbing and climbing. We're at 23 million in 2007, 38 in 2008, 47 in 2009. That, that, that inkling that you had that there was room in the marketplace for a not-so-sweet beverage um, ended up being right, and the market, is, the market is rewarding you for that. I want to take us through the story because it's going to lead to, I think, a pretty interesting reader question, uh, listener question here. Um, so um, when you get to 2012 last year, $88.5 million in sales. That's pretty good there. for a dude who was selling it out <laughs> of his house um, not that long ago. Um, and, and along the way, in uh, I guess it was 2008, uh, Coca-Cola uh, bought 40% of Honest Tea. And then two years ago, Coca-Cola is essentially the is the owner right. of of honesty and that leads to a uh, that leads to so right now honesty this really kind of uh, maverick um um insurgent kind of brand is owned by Coca-Cola the the great uh beverage behemoth and that leads to a question from a listener and I want to give it it's a question really for um for you Seth and Actually, there are two questions. One comes from Chris Stone of Los Angeles. And Chris asks, in most startups, as the business begins to scale, the founder is often replaced as CEO by a more experienced executive. That doesn't seem to have happened at Honest Tea. And Chris asks, why? I think uh, that is a really important insight uh, about what is different about our relationship with Coca-Cola and, mm-hmm. and about our brand. And I would say that, first of all, this brand is so different than the normal offerings of the Coca-Cola company mm-hmm. um, that the knowledge of not just this product but the consumer, um, the, the the approach to nature that we have is mm-hmm. really important to retain. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it is true. Chris is right that most of the time I, I'm friendly with the, the president of vitamin water. And he told me because uh, he left shortly after Coke bought that company. He said, you know, the first first four months, they want to know what you think. The next mm-hmm. four months, they want to know your phone number. Mm-hmm. And after that, they don't want to know you. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> but with Honest Tea, um, you know, the, the knowledge and, and the authenticity of the brand is still very much uh, bound with the, uh, the team that, that created it. Mm-hmm. And so we're still very relevant. Uh, and, and as long as it continues to grow and deliver the business results that right. we, we are looking for, then uh, it makes sense to continue that way. Right. So you, you, so it's, it's just to extrapolate here or just to maybe rephrase a little bit, it seems like you see yourself as in, a, in, a, in a leadership role, but also in kind of a stewardship role of yeah. the brand, of well, the it, notion, of yeah. the mission. Well, it's speaking personally, I mean, you know, why would I choose to stay is because I. this has always been, as I, I said at the very beginning, about a cause, about building something important and powerful. And from my perspective, just because Coke Invest doesn't mean I care any less about it. Um, now, it may, you know, we worked so hard those first 10 years to get to this point. Let's, now the table is set. Let's, you know, let's really make something of it. Right. And that goes to something um, that, that Barry mentioned in the book. I'll ask you about this. Barry, you talk about, um, I mean, for a hard-headed guy, you, you have some very clever, interesting ways to come up with uh, alternatives to how to finance this. You're clearly uh, a numbers guy, an MIT grad. But you also talk about, and I think it connects to what Seth was just saying, the importance of reputational capital, not only for honesty, but for entrepreneurs in general. What is reputational capital and why does it matter? One of the things that happens is you have to build trust with your team, with your investors, and possibly with people who end up acquiring you. And that's not something that you get to do for free. Uh, it has to be earned. And that's something Honest Tea did with the stores, that when we had problems with products, we didn't wait for them to say, you have to take it back. We 
offered to take it back, mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. took back more products than we really had to because we didn't want to have two strikes. We were chasing enough with the, the one strike. And one of the things that we did in our relationship with Coca-Cola is we had three years of working together before they had control where they really had a chance to understand Seth's strengths, Seth's weaknesses, and appreciate uh, why he is so fundamental to the brand. Um, let's get to another listener question. It's Maria London. She's from East Lansing, Michigan. East Lansing, Michigan, a Big Ten city. Uh, she wants to know, uh, what's the biggest challenge for honesty since becoming part of Coca-Cola. Do you want to take that, Jeff? Sure, sure. So, you know, what's interesting, the the wonderful um, benefit of Coke has, one of the wonderful benefits has been expanded distribution. So we're now in over 60% of the grocery stores around the country, mm. and, and we were in single digits before then. Mm-hmm. But the national awareness of our brand is still very low. It's mm. it's below 20%. How do you so, make uh, so some, you are, some kind of survey research brand, that measures that? Yeah, this is that, another yeah. resource Coke has. They yeah. have all these different you know, right. c- customer insights. And so um, as we track uh, awareness among consumers, it's very low. So we have this marketing challenge where we, you know, the distribution's there. Um, and obviously, without the awareness, the sales aren't going to be there. So how do we create awareness uh, in a way that is still authentic, that's still, you know, quote, unquote, honest, um, without the big spend, because we still don't, even though we're part of Coca-Cola, we don't have the, the multi-million dollar advertising budget that, that uh, you know, some of the big brands do. So, so finding ways to create awareness uh, for the brand is still an ongoing challenge. Mm-hmm. But you did have a conflict at one point with, uh, you might have, you probably have had many as we all have conflicts in all of our lives, right. but you did have a conflict with Coca-Cola uh, about uh, labeling. Right. Tell us about that. Right. Well, our product, Honest Kids, that we sell is a drink pouch, and it's sweetened with, uh, at the time it was sweetened with organic cane sugar, uh, and on the package, uh, we had written the words, no high fructose corn syrup, exclamation point. And, uh, you know, that is an ingredient that's found in a lot of Coca-Cola products. And so uh, when we brought this product to the Coke organization for them to sell, um, there was some concern raised, well, we're, we like this product, we want to sell it, but, you know, it's hard to sell a product that is, 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 has an implied dig at one of our main ingredients. Mm-hmm. We'd like you to take that off the package. So they asked you, say, get that, take that off the package. Yeah, yep. yeah. And you said? I said, we love our partnership with Coca-Cola. We're excited <laughs> to continue to build it. But this phrase is important to our consumers. It, it speaks to whether the amount of processing of the ingredient. And it wasn't a discussion about whether it tastes better or mm-hmm. whether it's healthier. It's just that... Um, the consumers that we're connecting with are people who are looking for products as close to nature as they can be. And uh, organic cane sugar has less is a less processed ingredient than high fructose corn syrup. And, and so, now it's made with fruit juice. Yeah, so this now we've actually taken it one step further. Now it's sweetened only with fruit juice. There's no, mm-hmm. or uh, it's not sweetened with sugar. Uh, there's a, nutritionally it's the same. It's just that the the, uh, the way the ingredient panel reads. But anyway, it was a it was an important I'd say check uh, for all of us to understand that. You know, if we're really serious about honest, the the brand owners continuing to drive the way the brand is built, uh, and Coke respected that, and uh, certainly something that uh, I appreciated. Um, great, and it goes to something again to, to you, Barry. At, at one point, I think it was you who who um, who says this in 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 the book um, that ultimately the brand is called Honest Tea, but the honest part is more important than the tea part. Correct. That what. Consumers do when they take our product, they put it in their bodies. Yeah. And it's hard to think of a more trustworthy, act, trusting activity than consuming. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to put a T-shirt on. Uh, it's another uh, to read a paper, but to go and ingest what it is that we've taken. Uh, and so 
the idea that you have a food product which is totally made the way you'd like it to be made is something that is uh, uh, too rare out there. And that we, by calling ourselves Honest Tea, invited consumers to challenge us. They really would say, well, okay, why are you honest? How come you only put calories per serving, not calories per bottle on the label? Isn't mm-hmm. that a lie? Isn't that a cheat? And our response was, well, actually, we believe there should be calories per bottle on there. We put it there, but at the time, we were required to list calories per serving. That's what the government regulation said. And so we agree with you, eight ounces isn't a serving. But any time that uh, we would venture, uh, people, consumers would make sure that uh, they would read things carefully and mm-hmm. keep us on track. Interesting. This actually goes to another question. We have a couple. What we're going to do? Um, another question about the book, and then uh, I want to get in a couple more listener questions, and then uh, close by extracting some some of the great lessons that you guys have learned. But uh, Anna Seacat, Seacat, uh, Seacat of um, Lexington, Kentucky, asks um, this is a more general question, but I think it's germane to your both of your experiences. She sa- she asks, is transparency? just the newest marketing buzzword, or do you think it can be implemented as a competitive advantage? I don't think transparency is a buzzword. I think it's a precondition these days. I Interesting. think you know, consumers just have access to information, and the worst uh, violation you can make is to get caught you know, lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Especially if your brand has the word honest <laughs> in it. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say, you know, but there's different levels of transparency. Yeah. And, you know, our, the question we always ask is how deep can we go? Let's, so it's not, not just about, of course, we're going to tell them what the ingredients are, yeah. but let's show them the tea garden where it's grown. Okay, uh-huh. Let's talk about how much, not just that it's fair trade tea, but how much per pound are we paying extra for fair trade? Very so, yeah. so, you know, the, that's the challenge I, I put to our team is it's... Transparency is, is a minimal expectation. It's it's how, how much of the you know are you willing to open the robe and show full dis, you know full disclosure and and in a way even the book is about transparency because it's we're obviously airing some some painful lessons Absolutely. and painful chapters of uh, the whole experience. No, that's one of the things that I like about the book, uh, Seth, is that it's it's not. Sometimes these sort of stories about companies, it's a somewhat kind of shellacked mm-hmm. um, story. And this is this is very much a kind of very authentic, very I think very humble uh, warts and all story. And I think that that actually makes it work better. Um, well, let me ask you another question about the book per se. You guys have taken a, a an interesting move here, and in that this is a business book. It's a story of this company, all kinds of great lessons for entrepreneurs, and yet. There are a lot of pictures in this book. It's a graphic novel. It's a comic. What? Why did you guys make that choice? Well, there are so many business books out there, and they all seem to fall into a pattern. As you said, sometimes they're shellacked yeah. as well. But um, I found myself, this was my, my uh, two, two years ago, um, reading these books and kind of struggling to get through. After the first few chapters, I, I, I was stalling out. And at the same time, my oldest son, who is uh, dyslexic, and he was in his senior year of high school, so maybe he was in his senior slump, he yeah. was reading some great comic books. Yeah. And I kept finding myself you know, picking up his comic books instead of reading my, my, my business books. And I, I said, why can't we make this story about um, a mission-driven business? Let's bring that, make that come alive. Let's find a way to make that engaging and pull people in and, and pull in different audiences, not the typical mm. business uh, book reader. And you know, Barry um, was on board with it because, as he said, it's it's different. Well, look, Daniel, this is a case where you have been the leader again. And so the talk that you gave at RSA is just shows how valuable 
a graphic presentation can be. It sticks with you yeah. more than any simple words will do. Yeah, and you've got and, some... Go ahead. Sorry, Barry. And the fact is you also get to speak in the first person. And that is, to me, a better way of presenting material. It's what I do naturally as a professor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I also like the way that I think it more explicitly inserts the both of you as characters uh, more directly rather than at a distance, even by, even in sort of the written form of I did this and I did that. Mm-hmm. I think it's like sort of seeing your guys' faces or cartoon mm-hmm. versions of mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. gives you, I think, a real feel for, uh, for, 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 for what it's like. Um, let's... Um, let's take our remaining minutes here and, and try to draw some lessons. Toward the end of the book, uh, and the book is Mission in a Bottle, uh, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. It's by the co-founders of Honest, Honest T, Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff. Toward the end of the book, and at various points in the book, you actually you know, take a step back um, and talk about some of the lessons that you have, um, some of the lessons that you have, have learned. And I want to um, pick out a couple of those lessons and... Um, bounce them off of you. Let's go to, uh, well, let's start, stick with Barry here for a moment. Um, you say that um, you advise fledging entrepreneurs, your product or service has to be radically different or better. Um, tell us about the importance of that and, 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 and put yourself in sort of the, the professorial uh, role here and say, right. you know, what's, what should a, a young entrepreneur be looking for in order to make his or her offering radically different rather than just incrementally different? So in the economics classroom, we say that if you undercut somebody by a penny or you make a product slightly better, you're going to capture the whole market. And that's just not true out there in the world. (laughs) So in order for people to pay attention to you, uh, you would really better make a difference in their lives. And there are so many things that are going to be worse for a startup. Your costs are going to be worse. Your distribution is going to be worse. Your brand recognition is going to be worse. In order to overcome all of those obstacles, it had better be that there's something that is fundamentally different and better and so much better that people really care about it. They will seek out the product. They will go to the store and say, why aren't you carrying this? Uh, or when there's a stock out, they'll come back. And they will give you second chances and third chances. And in order to make that happen, you can't just be 10% better. You have to be radically different and better. Um, also, at the end, you have you have 10 rules for, for, for the road, uh, some other really good lessons, and I like that they're printed on bottle caps here. And one of them I found really um, intriguing. Uh, it's, it says, don't compromise on the big things. Compromise on everything else. Can you give us an example of um, a big thing you didn't compromise on and a small thing that you did? Sure, sure. Well, the big thing was the sweetness level. I mean, you know, the easiest, when we were getting rejections from distributors or from retailers, they'd say, well, I'm selling a lot of these sweet drinks. Um, I don't think there's a market for a less sweet drink. So the easiest response would say, okay, well, double the sugar, we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't do that because we knew we wanted to make some, not just something we believed in, but something that was meaningfully different. On the small thing, um, the, one of the most ones we're still living with is the bottle. So we, um, going into the business, had great designs about a proprietary square bottle you know, that mm. would really stand out on the shelf. We got to the bottle supplier. Uh, I went to meet with them. And he said, well, number one, it's going to take about $128,000 to get proprietary molds. Number two, it's going to take about six months, which we didn't have. Uh, and all of a sudden I said, I think that round bottle looks pretty good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was, a, that was not what our original vision was, but it also wasn't um, going to interfere you know, with the, the fundamental proposition. Mm-hmm. So, so, it's impo- so there is a role for compromise. Yeah. But 
it's really the small stuff. And then the role where you hold your ground is on, is on the big stuff. How do you, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a human being, sort those things out? Is it a, is it a gut call? Yeah, a lot of it does feel like a gut call. It's not, I, 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 as funny as it sounds, I lose sleep, but I don't lose sleep over those kind of decisions um, because it has to work in the marketplace. And so one of the things we knew, for example, when we started with Fair Trade, our first Fair Trade tea came out in 2003. And one idea was, well, let's make everything fair trade. And we looked at the math, and as tempting as it would have been just for you know, impact, um, the, the math showed that it was, we were going to have to either raise our price or collapse our margins to the point where the business would have, would have collapsed. Mm. And so we said, we're going to do this, but it's a journey. And, and it wasn't until 2011 that we were able to make all of our teas fair trade. So we got there. But we didn't get there overnight, and, yeah. and the business is still standing as a result. Yeah, uh, and, and um, you all guys also offer some counter. I, I found this counterintuitive, counterintuitive advice that it sort of goes against most of like the personal productivity about leadership advice, which is don't delegate. Uh, and and I think one of the remarkable things about this, this story is is how much not only how little sleep Seth got, but how much time <laughs> he spent driving around places. <laughs> So tell us about uh, the importance of not delegating. Well, in the, in the beginning, it's especially important to understand every aspect of the business because as you scale, and this is one of the reasons that, one of the reasons I think I'm still here is because I've, I've understood every aspect of the business and at one point or another had to manage it. And so, um, you know, having that grounding will, even as we scale and, and we bring on people, number one, I'll know what I'm looking for when I hire somebody to, to do it better than me, which was, was often not hard to do. But number two, I could never get snowballed by somebody who could say, oh, you don't understand this. This is how it works um, because I'd done it. And so um, and that also gains respect within the team because they know, mm. you know, I can be in a meeting and ask not just ask smart questions. I can sort of say, well, here's how we used to do it or. Um, and and it just makes it um, it make it makes sure I'm still relevant um, on all aspects of the business. Mm-hmm. And you say you still read every reader every um, all the emails email, we get customer email. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you still read them, really. I do. I don't uh-huh. respond to them all right. now, but but yeah, they they all come in through to my email, so I'm uh, I'll, I'll go through them. Fascinating. I mean, for the first ten years, we respond to every single one ourselves. <laughs> you really did. That's that's incredible. I mean, that's and I, I think there's uh, it's interesting. Um, uh, listeners can Google this. Paul Graham at Y Combinator has a very 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 interesting essay um, about the importance of, in some ways, not scaling certain things. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you guys really embodied that, saying we're going to touch the customers, we're going to be hands-on, and even if that might inhibit a little bit of scale in the short term, it's going to pay huge dividends in the long term. Barry, we're going to end with you here. So you're you're still at uh, at the Yale School of Management. Uh, what what kind of great ideas are your students hatching these days? What's the next honesty coming out of New Haven? Well, uh, in fact, I've taken an idea that came out of honesty that didn't work in honesty and am bringing it to the market. Tell us about it, that. It's called kombucha rather than kombucha. Mm-hmm. We made this fantastic product of honesty, an honest kombucha, that we all loved, but we couldn't keep the alcohol below a half a percent, okay. which is the legal limit to make a non-alcoholic drink. And so they say in software, when you have a bug, turn it into a feature. Mm-hmm. Well, I know how to make alcoholic kombucha. <laughs> well, we were making by mistake. And so this time we got the right license. And uh, we have now created another great product. Uh, we have distribution. And... I hope that one day uh, that'll be something in the pink household as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope not too much of it right now, especially <laughs> since I got a ten-year-old. Uh, but uh, kombucha, that sounds great, and I think there's a. I think I actually think there's a great lesson. I think there's a great lesson there too about taking something that seems like oop, that's a quote-unquote failure, 
but looking at it in a different way. At some level, it goes to, I think, a question, Barry, that you and, and Ian Ayers ask in, in Why Not, which is the question of where else would it work? So it, yeah. didn't, it didn't work as a, as a beverage for families and kids, but where else would it work? Well, maybe it's going to work in a bar. Maybe it's going to work as a new kind of uh, hipster spirit uh, drink or something like that. So great, a, great way to, a great way to end. Our, our guests here on Office Hours have been Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff. They are the co-founders of Honest Tea, makers of a, just a great, great drink. I am partial to... Honest Fizz, which I think was a great, great revelation as someone who loves carbonated beverages but doesn't like sugar or chemicals. Um, the book, though, that they're talking about here, it's a great book. Look for it at any bookseller near you. It's called Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. It's a graphic novel, one of the best, I think, works of um, uh, entrepreneurial lessons that I've read in a very, very long time. Um, that is it for Office Hours. Thanks for being with us, Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff. Uh, please tune in to our next episode uh, when our guest will be Malcolm Gladwell, who's out with a new book, David and Goliath, sort of like Honest Tea Story, <laughs> that will get lots of attention. Uh, you can find out more on www.danpink.com. Until then, I'm Daniel Pink. This is Office Hours. If you missed an episode... You ought to be ashamed of yourself, but you can listen to previous episodes on iTunes or danpink.com. Thanks for listening.